It is different. It is different. It's different. It's always, it's always different, Tony. So do you guys actually know each other? Have you met in the past at, at Stock Doctor events? Yeah, certainly have. No, cross paths many a times at various different uh, events. It was one of the things uh, Lincoln Indicators was renowned for. We were definitely a business of the people. So uh, there weren't many uh, palms I didn't get to press the flesh with. And, uh, <laughs> of course, we can't do that anymore, Tony. No. Now it's all elbows and kicking of ankles. Yeah, because, uh, probably not smart because uh, mine are quite brutal uh, at this age. <laughs> like when it's damage. I was uh, I was looking forward to a, a stock doctor dinner this year too. Yeah, with no, you guys. no, no. Well, uh, I'm sure the uh, I'm sure the gang will be rustling that up once uh, once they can uh, are allowed to do so. Tim was always a big fan of that, so uh, yeah, yeah I, I don't think you'll have to wait too long. Mm. So thanks for coming on, mate. Um, uh, what, for, I'm sure most people listening to this know who you are, but for the people who don't, do you want to introduce yourself to our audience? Yeah, well, my name's Elio D'Amato and, well, I mean, I've been a, a fan of the share market for pretty much most of my life, although from a formal sense, I made it a career almost some 20 years ago and most recently uh, uh, with a, a career that spanned 17 years at Lincoln Indicators, starting as a junior analyst and then through making more right calls and wrong calls and the natural attrition that occurs in the sector, uh, ended up becoming an executive director of the business. and. Well, hopefully I served it with distinction over those uh, those many years, but obviously helped many investors be self-directed and pick the stocks to be in and avoid the ones um, that they should and ultimately come out the other end uh, successful and make money out of this uh, caper, which is called the share market. Um, though recently I've decided to uh, uh, cross uh, or I suppose change uh, uh, tax somewhat. It's been great and a great privilege to serve the Lincoln family over those many years, but it's now time to look after Casa D'Amato somewhat. So um, I've now uh, uh, invested in myself, investing in my own family and, and really just trying to find my feet in my now new role in this whole caper. And you're in Melbourne? That's correct. Yeah, Melbourne-based and born and bred. So uh, haven't had to be too displaced. And that was the great thing about Lincoln Indicators. In fact, I applied for the role, geez, upteenth amount of times before I actually got it. So it's a bit of a story of persistence, <laughs> um, just like share investing, I suppose. Um, but you know, ultimately, if you believe enough and you have enough faith and you just keep doubling down and eventually it comes up trumps. What's, mm. what, what were the D'Amato family doing before you, you know, decided to throw your weight into the stock game? Well, as you'd expect, property is what uh, our caper was built on. And in fact, my, father, my dear father is now past now. Never really thought I'd actually work for a career. In fact, he, he thought it was all smoke and mirrors and never really trusted the share market and always lamented that I didn't go work for my brother, Romeo, who runs a high-end construction firm building bridges and tunnels and all sort of high-end civil engineering works. And uh, never quite saw me in that same uh, same uh, ill. So I'm a bit of the black sheep. And well, it was always great trying to convince dad that I did actually work for a living. In fact, I remember once walking down the local mall and, you know, we walked past Commonwealth Bank and I thought, here we go, got a bright idea. Uh, hey, dad, um, you know what? In the share market, you can actually own the Commonwealth Bank. And he would look at me and he said to me, he goes, really? He was quite shocked. And I said, yeah, that's true. And he said, do you own some? I said, yes, I do, dad. And he said, oh, that's fantastic. He goes, look, son, I'll tell you what I want you to do. Go inside, ask the lady behind the counter, can you have some money? And I have to go, well, Dad, I can't do that because I actually bank with the National Australia Bank. I don't bank with the Commonwealth. And then he put his hand on my shoulder and he said, 
well then son, you don't really own it, do you? <laughs> and I think that probably highlights the, per the challenge I had convincing him. Um, but nonetheless, though, uh, I think over the years, he, he did come to accept that. Uh, and I know definitely mum has. In fact, I think if I was a furniture salesman, she'd still be happy too. Good story. So are you, are you involved now in the property business or are you sticking with shares? No, I am sticking with shares. It's yeah. uh, it's in the blood. It's always been a passion. In fact, it's one of the great life, a, a bit of luck really to turn your life passion into your career and, and what you've done. And the apple very rarely falls far from the tree. And it's something I love. You know, you could consider exploring Zen or whatever it is, but when you keep coming back to the thing you did every day of your life and mm -hmm. it keeps drawing you like a siren to the ocean, it's just... Um, you can't let it go. And in fact, you know, with the great success that I've been able to achieve, the success that I've helped investors with over the many years, um, I feel it'd be a life shame if I just simply packed up and walked away. And yeah, I probably could, you know, retire and, and you know, there's not necessarily need to work. But then ultimately what we did at Lincoln Indicators and what I bought into so heavily was that we were helping people. And it wasn't like we were helping, you know, the Packer families or the Roaches or anyone at that high-end family wealth uh, angle. We were helping regular mum and dad investors who had accumulated a net sum over their lifetime, had worked hard, uh, you know, to accumulate that. They could have been doctors or lawyers or sheep farmers and landscape gardeners. It didn't matter. What we did, though, was we helped them navigate this volatile but very rewarding asset class by giving them good information to allow them to make fully informed investment decisions. And, and really, once that gets in your blood, you can't let that go. And, and, and that'll be something that'll be a key part of what I continue to do. Once, of course, um, I'm allowed to by the fine people of ASIC, because uh, as you know, in order to do, provide that sort of advice, mm. uh, you need to attain a, a financial services license and with good reason too. Is that the plan? Are you, are you going to do that? Yeah, I mean, education's been in my blood for a while, Tony. I, I love talking stocks, if you haven't gathered that by now. Um, it's uh, something I love doing, and I really just want to help investors, you know, be successful. And, and one of the big challenges we face is when you get markets like we've currently experienced recently, particularly when stocks on the margins are making nosebleed-type returns mm. to try to bring a sense of reality to these people who see it going up and think that it's so easy to make money in the share market and you have to try to give them a sense of perspective and you know one might argue even this current scenario where we're headed for a recession well it doesn't feel like the recession that i went through in the 90s um in fact if you look at some of the company reports recently i mean uh, adairs for example revenues actually up <laughs> I mean, Temple mm. and Webster, all these businesses that are selling to consumers are actually having one of their best times in their history, and yet we're in the midst of a recession. And it's a bit like that for share investors in the moment where you know, the economy is pretty much stuffed. Uh, companies uh, are running on uh, pretty much fine wire, and yet they're trading at all-time highs. So it's trying about providing that perspective in a fun and engaging way that also allows them to be prepared, more importantly, once something changes and it will change because that's the market behaving normally. Uh, so yeah, there will be a strong element of that. And then once I bed that down, who knows where that might take me. Oh, that's interesting. So, so is it back to school for you then, is it? Cause I think you have to get a degree these days, don't you, to, to obtain the license? Well, fortunately, it was one of the things I figured out early on yeah, was okay. that I would have all the uh, education qualifications. So I've got a, you know, my various degrees, postgraduate degrees and all that sort of stuff. And 
I think, you know, one of the, the great joys is taking that complex theory that usually sits up there in the ivory tower and analysts bestow their view on the world to the masses and we accept it with great fervor as that is definitely going to have it happen. Well, I take those complex concepts and bring it down to real life investing values, which can often work against me because people mm. think I'm just a jovial guy <laughs> who, uh, you know, uh, you know, talks a lot and, and just picks stocks and all that sort of thing. But there is a bit of grunt to what I do. And, you know, my background as it were is really in the world of quantitative analytics. Um, so, you know, big data, number crunching, really that's um, my angle uh, because, you know, the numbers don't lie unless you've got a creative accountant, of course. <laughs> and ultimately at the end of the day, um, that will determine what your level of success is. It's about managing risk. That's what all money management's about. It's about managing downside risk and it's about managing the risk of not missing out on potential upside because of course that's the double-edged sword that can really kill you in the share market not only downside risk but then if you do cop that and then miss the upside well then you walk away from the share market forever and that's so disappointing when i hear that yeah interesting though uh you i like to talk to people who've been through the education process in uh when it comes to getting financial services licenses and things like that mm. uh i remember when i retired you know 14 15 years ago and I went and met with my accountant and said, look, uh, you know, I've been investing for a while now. It seems to be working out. My friends are asking me for advice. My relatives are asking me for advice. You know, I'm thinking about maybe setting up a business. And we talked about going to university and getting the license and all the rest of it. And uh, he showed me some of the course notes. And I thought, I'm going to spend my whole time at university arguing with the professors because uh, <laughs> the way I invest is diametrically opposed to what they what they were teaching, you know, efficient market theory and diversification and things like that. So how, how, do you, how did you get through that process and not go crazy listening to what the textbooks say? Yeah, I think the best way for me to describe it is if I can use the analogy of building a house, where if you're wanting to become an architect or um, obtain you know, a license to build a home, there are basics, basic understanding standings, basic principles that you really do, do need to get your head across. Now, whilst, you know, four walls uh, with 90 degrees, you know, is the best way possibly to build a house, it's the most sturdy, et cetera. Inevitably, you do need to understand those basics to then start to push the boundaries and extend beyond that. But what you're implying though, is actually a very true point. And again, it's one of the things that after educating all the thousands of people that I have over the years, and breaking it down to a very simple level as to how to pick businesses, how to identify great mm. companies, how to avoid potential disasters, I actually make it sound a lot simpler than a lot of people think it needs to be. Mm. Most people think it has to be really hard and it doesn't. And in fact, you know, the old sniff test carries mm. 80% of what your investment decision should be. You know, just lift, open the window and look outside. Is it actually raining or is it sunny rather than going and trying to <laughs> see what sort of meteorologist thinks is going to happen. Often, the, the, it's the old 80-20 rule. 20% 20 of the work will give you 80% of the value and often that is intuition and sniff tests. And one of the things we definitely undervalue in life is the life experience that we've been able to attain over all these years. And sometimes you just got to sit down and you look at these businesses and when you have a bit of a read and you don't have to go too in depth, you don't have to learn all the accounting stuff, you just have to have a basic understanding of what it is that makes a good business. And once you go through those, you can actually start to go, oh, geez, I don't know if this sounds right. And seriously, with 2,000 stocks on the stock exchange, unless it's a light bulb moment, the minute you read that report or whatever it is, then seriously move mm. on and walk away. And, and again, that's one of the things you have to master as an investor um, to know that you can't invest in everything. And even what you do invest in, not all of it always ends up right. 
but you've got to feel comfortable with it. You've got to believe in it and you've got to understand it. And, and that will go a long way to you ultimately achieving uh, long-term success. But yeah, you're right. The, the, the academic studies as they were don't necessarily teach you much. Mm. But then if you do, what happens is once you get that foundation and groundwork, you can then massage it and tweak it to your own individual and personal style to then add the value on top of that. And notwithstanding that, you know, these quant analysts and algo traders and all like all started with finance 101, but eventually what they branch out into is their own mm. various um, uh, you know fields of expertise, and that'll be a lot built on experience and whatever whatever it is the current environment's telling them. Mm, no, that's right. Yeah, I remember uh, one of the uh, I did do a finance course internally once at the at the company I was working for, and uh, the the person who was lecturing once said, um, "You know what the sniff test is?" And I said, "No." He said. Well, you pick up a perfume bottle, you can read the ingredients or you can uncap it and have a smell. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. What a great way to describe it. That said, Tony, I will just quickly say that the whole license process that I've gone through, I'm now waiting to see what uh, happens with regards to receiving that. Um, but, I mean, it's a very th thorough and rigorous process and it does extend beyond just the education side. So it's a process which ensures that you've got, you know, all the various protections in place, uh, your insurances, the, yeah. you've got the right procedures in order to ensure the consumer's rights are protected. And mm -hmm. particularly when, you know, my experience with Lincoln Indicators has always been with direct mum and dad investors. I mean, ASIC's not really interested in protecting, you know, the Meyer family or the Gandalf family or mm -hmm. anyone that's got massive amounts of wealth. They've got their teams behind them. This is about, you know, trying to protect mum and dad investors. And for the vast majority of people who do participate in this space, they do enter it with the right intention. Unfortunately, you can't, regulate away bad behavior you know if someone's going to engage in bad practice they'll do so irrespective of what sort of checks and balances you have in place but at the very least at a base level again um, there's a lot of good boxes that I had to tick before I could even press submit and and now let's just hope I dotted all my eyes and crossed my T's otherwise mm. it could be another few months to wait. <laughs> and and so is the plan to offer advice or to offer advice or and or run a fund what, what what's the future hold? Oh look I don't want to go that far ahead Tony because of course that's a lot of blue sky and a lot of mm. dollars to invest as well but no the first step will be the education side I dare suggest and it will be about demystifying a lot of investment concepts. I think oh, the question that everyone asks me is how is what you're going to do different than what you used to do uh, for 17 years and made your life and invested that way, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the thing I will be doing very differently is that I acknowledge that within the share market, there are many different fates when it comes to this church. There are you know, different ways to approach investing. And it is, you know, not on anyone to say that you're incorrect or that you're right and you must do this and, and do that. I mean, you've got to remember that the share market needs conflict. It needs disagreement because for anyone who believes a stock is a passionate buy, there has to be someone on the side of another computer screen somewhere who fervently just as much believes that it's a sell. And unless you get that conflict, disagreement of ideals, you won't have any trade. Mm. Now, the thing is, someone's going to be on the wrong side of a trade, be it either the buyer or the seller. But, but the reality is both could be right relative to their own personal investment strategy. So what I want to do that's different is to help investors find the right way that they want to invest. What is it that makes them feel comfortable? Are they scared of big drawdowns in share price? Are they more risk, avert, you know, risk takers and they don't mind when the share price pulls back? They'll pin their ears back and double down on a business that they maintain faith in. It's about giving them frameworks relative to the way they want to invest. And 
you know, over the many years, I found that what it is that leads investors to fail more often than not is not the strategy they decide to employ. Rather, it's the failure to have a strategy in the first place yes. that leads them to disaster. Because if they ask themselves, what do I do now? Inevitably, it's already too late. But what do I do now? Questions should be answered before they even buy the stock. And it's about making sure that that uh, plan that they create for themselves in order to help them invest is absolutely and clearly laid out and is comfortable relative to the way that they want to tackle things. And, and really, that's what it's about, taking 2,000 stocks, giving them a, you know, a smaller group in order to be able to actually invest in the way they want and then be able to apply whatever rules on top of that in order to have a portfolio of 20 to 30 stocks that align with what they're trying to achieve over the long run. Yeah, we. Uh, I've always, my, my wife and I actually did a bit of an outline for a book on financial literacy, but we, and we call it the financial ladder. So the way we mm. approach it is that, uh, uh, we've talked about this in our podcast previously, if, you, if you're interested in the share market and you, and you should be in terms of long-term planning, uh, maybe start off with an index fund, then maybe build your own index fund by buying shares in the top 10 or top 20%, and then have a crack at valuing those 10 or 20 shares yep. and then once you can value those and feel confident then look at the broader market so there's a whole series of steps that people can go down to become comfortable with investing in shares that's the beautiful thing about the share market unlike dare i say a property where with property you have to commit so much capital just to be you know involved in one property one house i mean there's so much that has to go right and there's so much that could go wrong Whereas in the share market, you can have, you have total flexibility over what you do. I mean, you mentioned the index funds. I mean, there you're immediately getting 30 to 40, 50, and in the case of the 200, of course, or 200 stocks um, immediately for the price of $500 minimum trade. So, you know, the younger generation, the next stage of wealth accumulator needs to understand that there are other options out there outside of property. I mean, property is at ridiculous levels. Some might argue shares at the moment are at uh, similar things given our current climate. But at least you can start to accumulate wealth with a far more sensible and rational approach rather than necessarily you know, have to starve yourself for the next 10 years just to get to a just to get a deposit and then mm. to carry a home loan that you'll never pay off to the day you die. I mean, what a life of misery. Why on earth would you do that? But that's what many of the current first home buyers at this current stage where mm. property prices are at, that's the reality they face. And mm. is that one that they're comfortable with? Well, that's obviously up to them. Yeah, and, and of course, you don't, they don't have to be exclusive. You can do both as well, which, which oh, we have course. all the way along as well. Yeah. Absolutely. If you engage in good financial hygiene, the world's your oyster because we do live in a society where we are truly blessed. And, and to be honest with you, if someone has a can-do attitude, there's nothing that gets in their way. Mm, no, I agree. Now, you said before you, you're going to teach people to be, or, or the market has uh, uh, lots of different points of view, but, but have you been converted to the way of quality investing? Oh, no, I've always been a quality investor. That's what we uh, used to do at Lincoln Indicators. Mm. Uh, quite frankly, when people would say, oh, I don't want to buy into this stock because it's, you know, I, uh, there's no value in it, I'd sit there and I'd go, well, what value do you put on a great business? Just find a great business and the share price will look after itself. I mean, I can remember when uh, as a junior analyst uh, covering Cochlear at like $13 and people would say, oh, it's an all-time high, I don't know if I want to get in. Well, aren't they slapping the forehead today? Um, and history is yeah, covered with those sorts of stories. And ultimately, you know, if you do find great businesses with great management teams that have a proven track record, have, you know, good prospects moving forward, then that's all you need to do with regards to investing. I mean, if I went out and said, oh, geez, I want to go buy a new business to, you know, for, as my new phase in career. And what I want to do is I want to find a company that has a whole bunch of debt, 
has never generated any cash, has um, you know, got no prospects of growing into the future and is run by a bunch of clowns. Now, that doesn't necessarily sound like a great business for me to acquire. Whereas I'd be wanting to find someone who is successful, who has good traction, who doesn't owe anyone any money, is generating really strong cash flows, and I'll be willing to pay more than um, for the rubbish business because it's a far easier bet for me to get my head around. And the numbers prove, uh, and you know what you're referring to there, Tony, is factor investing and quality in terms of factors. So when you're looking at you know earnings efficiency, profit margins, earnings growth, those sorts of elements. History has proven time and time again, particularly here in the Australian market, that quality investing is one of the stronger performing factors when it comes to identifying long-term growth. Value is actually one of the worst. And, and to be honest, that's because uh, value is a factor of price in the sense that when price goes down, the value goes up, but often price goes down because there's something wrong with the business. So it's one of those things, you know, if you buy cheap, you'll end up staying, it'll end up staying cheap. And for the occasional one or two that you get right, there's so many that end up continuing to remain wrong. And the other interesting one, and this is where probably my career will be a little different than what most people would know me for, is that another factor which has been incredibly strong, not only here in Australia, but overseas, is, dare I say it, momentum. And it's one of the important things that investors need to appreciate and understand that notwithstanding that, you know, good businesses have to do good things in order for them to succeed over the long term, you can't ignore what momentum actually shows you when it comes to share price, particularly as a retail investor where you're not a fund manager looking to, like when we had the Lincoln Australian funds, you know, we were putting millions of dollars into a business, which meant we had to take a view outside of what was occurring now. Clients would say, oh, the share price has fallen. 10%, why don't you get out? Well, if we did, we'd make it fall 50% because we held so much of the stock. So what we would um, have to do is take a much you know, broader term perspective in, in regards to that. And yes, sometimes there'd be a stock where we'd go, oh, geez, we don't like where that price momentum's going at the moment, but you know, we still believe in it. So we're going to hold and if necessary, top up even more. Whereas retail investors don't have that problem. Mm. You know, when they exit a stock, it very rarely, if ever, causes a ripple. You know, no one says, oh, geez, Tony sold the stock today. I quickly have to, you know, sell my entire holding. Um, that, that's just not necessary. So I think having an element of momentum uh, within one's investment strategy is another way to also provide comfort because as the mathematics will always show you, it's not just about upside, but it's also about protecting downside, retaining capital. Because if you take too big a hit on your capital relative to your stage of life, now look, I'm not generating an income. So for me at the moment, capital is pretty precious. For those in retirement phase, it's the same thing because they might not have the time frame or the additional uh, coins sitting on the sidelines that they can keep depositing into the market. And that's one of those you know, risk management things you need to consider and, and ignoring momentum completely and altogether may be a risk. Uh, for investors. So I'm not saying you go in you know, blindly, but incorporating it as part of an overall strategy is a very effective means of achieving successful returns. No, I agree. So by momentum though, we, we call it sentiment when we're investing in on our yep. show. Yeah. Yeah, no, de definitely we need to look at sentiment. Um, I, I do take you to task a little bit. We, we combine quality and, and sentiment, but we also add value as well. And that gives us a bit of a stronger return, just, just gooses the returns up a little bit more than just is paying any price for a stock. Yeah, I know that. But then the question about value is always into your inputs. And, uh, you know, too many times over the years, and remember, this was my craft. I mean, I could print out 
you know, a thousand line spreadsheets tell you, you know, toilet paper consumption for BHP out in the Pilbara for the next 10 years and discount that back to a present value. I mean, that's what I used to do, but you'd be amazed how many times the analyst would sit there and just tweak that little terminal number at the end or mm. whatever it was in order to make that valuation look a little sweeter because they didn't want to give up that stock. Oh, yeah. no, I, I don't, now, I don't disagree, though, that when it comes to uh, position sizing, like how much of your stock do you hold? Do you take profits off the table? Um, is now the right time to possibly top up uh, your existing holding? Value can help provide perspective, but I don't think it's the sole decision process maker. Mm -hmm. If you rely on value on its own, I think you're just simply chasing your tail. You'll always, you'll always be moving into that, trying to move into the faster lane in a traffic jam and getting stuck, and then the lane goes past you again. It, it's sort of, it's a really bit of a head stuff to, to say it quite nicely. But if you combine it within an overall strategy, by all means, it's, 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 mm -hmm. it can be quite effective to give you perspective as to where your current position sits. Yeah, no, that's, that's what we do. That's why it's called quality of value investing with our podcast. Uh, yeah, so no, I think we're probably agreeing there. I'm not a big fan of discounted cash flows anyway, because I think it's just too hard to predict into oh. the future what, you know, what the revenues are going to be, let alone what they'll be next quarter or next uh, next month so oh but hang on yeah. tony these people have done university degrees yeah. surely that means i'll get it right 100 percent of the time isn't that right i thought so anyways yeah. <laughs> uh, what didn't buffett say wall street was the only place that people drove to work in in rolls royces and took advice from people who went to work on the subway yeah that's that's pretty much uh, which, exactly right which brings me to a question i wanted to ask elio like we've had we've done a number of interviews on this show with analysts and uh, high-profile uh, business journalists, financial journalists. And the, whenever we ask them about their own investing, well, what, tell us about your own portfolio and what's your own strategy for your own investments. What we often find is they, they don't have much of one. They're, uh, yeah. They talk about it for a living, <clears throat> but they don't actually <laughs> practice it very well. Um, I'm glad you said it, Cameron, uh, not me. <laughs> You're right. You are 1,000% right. <laughs> you don't know how correct you are, and your small sample is unfortunately much larger than I think some people may think. And it's been shocking to me, honestly, um, being kind of uh, new to this world, that the people that everyone else is listening to aren't actually doing it. They're just talking about it. So what about yourself? You've obviously been talking about it at Lincoln for 20 years. Uh, what, what do you do in your, if you, I mean, if, if you don't mind talking about it, what, what's your personal investment strategy like? Yeah, I mean, uh, well, it's definitely not in index funds or anything lazy like that. And I don't simply rely on someone else holding BHP in the banks for me. Um, that, that's been one of the privileges of having served my apprenticeship, if you can call 17 years that at Lincoln Indicators, is that I was able to take what it was that I was preaching and practicing it myself. And I would never have survived, never have been as engaging, never have been as convincing, unless, of course, I actually experienced the same level of success that, um, you know, what it was I was saying. And, and I can vouch for, you know, I rode the bumps. I mean, one of the things I often used to do, sorry to digress quickly, I'll come back to the strategy because I definitely want to articulate that. But when it came to uh, employing new junior analysts, one of the first questions, I mean, they'd all come with all, all these, those degrees that Tony loves, uh, you know, <laughs> they'd all say the right things that come in, you know, very sharp suits. And the first question I'd ask them would be, what stocks do you invest in? Tell me a stock. And inevitably, the first stock that came up was either BHP or, or Commonwealth Bank because they were the two larger ones. And I'd sit there and, you know, yes, I'd listen. Uh, so I'd nod my head and seem engaged. And then I'd ask them the next stock. Okay, what's your other stock? 
And that would inevitably throw them off because what they started to learn was that I wasn't necessarily interested in what they knew about a business and the like. I wanted to actually know that they knew what it felt like to lose money, to make money. The thrill of turning up on a Monday morning after the Dow Jones has gone up 5% on their Friday night, knowing that your portfolio is going to fly on Monday morning. You're knocking the doors down in the office at 7 a.m. getting ready to see how you're doing. That's the type of attitude I want because you need to know not just the euphoria of making money, but also the pain too of losing it. Know what your clients go through when a stock falls. And inevitably, as it was with in my case when I was a junior, my clients would have more money invested in these businesses than me. And yet I was hurting and then I'm thinking about them. It made me empathetic. It made me understanding it. It allowed me to understand the perspective of what someone would be going through when share prices go down. It's not just red or green arrows and then you throw away a line. Oh, yeah, it'll be right over the long run. Don't worry. You'll be fine because you had to live through it. You knew what it was and you actually did. And that's why um, it was so important to me. So when it, came, it comes to my investment strategy, I am not an ASX top 50 investor. Um, I have of, of an age group where I still have an eye to the future. I want to be invested in the businesses that are going to be the leaders tomorrow, not the ones that are the leaders today. So that means my risk appetite, and again, that's because I've been well looked after and what I've done through a career allows me to venture into stocks that you know may very well be in that very early stage development. They're not pie in the sky ideas. I don't invest in hope because hope's not a great investing strategy in the share market. Fairy tales don't always end in happy endings. Um, so, you know, I definitely want to see some rubber that hits the road. It means I might not get in at the bottom, but that doesn't bother me. I always leave a few cents for the next guy. I have no strain in worrying about that. But if I see a company that starts to generate real positive cash flow, that starts to really hit the rubber in regards to positive announcements, I avoid companies with bad announcements because they're just too hard. Keep it really clear, crystal clear, uh, generating earnings that are efficient. So it's not just about making money. I mean, there's no point making you know, a uh, billion dollars if you're generating $200 billion worth of revenue. Your margins are rubbish and seriously, you'd be better off probably putting it in the money market and getting a better return that way. So if you see these improving metrics, then that's the type of business that you really want to be invested in. And it will give you the confidence if you do delve a little bit lower into the risk scale or higher, I should say, into the risk scale where you will be accepting some of those ones where they can blow up. Uh, blow up on you. But the types of businesses at the moment, my portfolio is heavily structured towards the IT sector. Um, also that buy now, pay later sector, you, you can't ignore it. Um, notwithstanding, I've been taking profits recently. Um, I still have exposure um, into it. I love the healthcare sector. I mean, be it either, you know, CSL um, or Cochlear, which I do hold further to that. You go down a little deeper, you find stocks like Polynovo, PNV, uh, the dermal treatment company, you know, great business, not only here in Australia, um, but overseas, you go deeper into that. And you even look at regenerative medicines like Mesoblast or um, even, um, uh, I was just uh, trying to think of the uh, the code now, I've gone, uh, I've gone blank, but it will come to me uh, in, in a moment. Um, but, you know, you go deeper into this uh, space, there's these new businesses with new technologies that are emerging and, and I see them as being the real winners um, out of what it is the share market's all about, which is about raising capital, getting investors on board on the ground floor, and hopefully good management teams um, driving that capital and uh, and really achieving uh, you know great growth 
over the long run. So my portfolio has at the moment a little over 30 companies, but that's because I'm a stock nerd. Um, I wouldn't advocate the regular investor to have that many because that's just too much um, if you've got a, another life or something else to do. Um, but because I just love stocks, it's, it's a passion for me. So for me, that amount of uh, companies doesn't really um, uh, bother me at all. But, but it's, wide, it's a wide church again. And again, each of those stocks will have a different strategy applied to it based on the reason why I bought it. And, uh, and that's the thing that allows me to manage it easily because if I had to try to nitpick and figure out new reasons why, it'd be bloody impossible for me to do. So, so are all those stocks star stocks using the Stock Doctor system? Uh, no, they're not, not at the moment. Uh, th there's various different categories you find. So for those that are very familiar with the uh, Stock Doctor system, uh, star stocks are the stocks that met our rules, uh, rules one, two, and three, which meant they were financially healthy, generating efficient earnings and are expected to do well into the future with manageable active risks. Uh, and look, suffice to say, the majority of my portfolio has been filled with them. Uh, which is why it's also done incredibly well. I then look for next emerging businesses. So whilst companies that don't, met, don't meet those quantifiable rules right now, ones that have absolute real evidence that they could possibly achieve that, that, you know, that everything's moving in the right momentum. You look at the balance sheet, do your quick calcs on the back of an envelope and you go, rightio, this company's going to be achieving these margins, this amount of profitability moving forward. This is a company that's showing all the right things to eventually one day, be it two, three years time, could become a star stock in of itself and meet those rules. Um, and look, we've done a lot of back testing to suggest that if you got into star stocks early, even before they came in as star stocks, that our returns were quite well. And that's what saw the introduction of what we call our borderline uh, star stocks, the green stars, again, for those that are stock doctor members, um, where we saw real demonstrable evidence that if you got into star stocks early, that you could actually enhance your overall returns. And that uh, definitely continued for the time that I was up there. And yes, I do have some speculative investments, uh, Tony, on the side. So ExoFarm uh, was the stock that uh, I was uh, fumbling with, that's uh, EX1, it's regenerative medicine. Um, it uses uh, exomes, which are like a stem cell, but they're actually uh, from living tissue, not, um, not that otherwise. So it's a new field of study. It's a lot of blue sky and hope and it's a manageable amount that I can afford to lose. And I know exactly what it's gonna take for me to get out of the stock one day when something happens, be it either to the upside or to the downside as well. And it's that knowledge, it's that plan, it's that structure, the rule book that I need relative to how I like to invest that allows me to stay um, within, those, uh, within those boundaries. But you know, as you remember with the Stock Doctor, star stocks had nothing to do with what industry you were in. I mean, you could have star stocks that were in really bad industries. And if there's one thing that this whole crisis has taught us, I mean, look at the retail sector. We all worry the retail is going to suffer because everyone's losing their jobs and they all need government support. Uh, it's going to be really difficult because you can't walk into the store. The stores are all closed. Well, actually, if you look at some of the retail numbers, these companies are actually doing better. I mean, look at Shaver Shop, look at Adairs, look at... Uh, you know, even Nick Scarley, who doesn't even have an online presence, has actually been able to grow earnings in the second half of the year. I mean, it's absolutely insane. But it shows you you can be a good business and cope with other conditions that possibly the remainder of your sector is having imposed mm -hmm. on them and you can still do quite well. And that's why I engage in bottom-up investing. I look at the business first rather than what's going on in the industry. That's just, you know, a bit of a sanity check. I get the drone up there and have a look, but definitely the majority of the grunt work I do is in the bottom-up. And 
requires a little bit more work. But then again, if you've got the rules that you know what you're looking for, it actually isn't as much as you might think. And, and are you achieving uh, more than 18.6% compound growth? <laughs> Very good, actually. Actually, I think I saw on their website it was 177 Well, the okay. good news is, well, within the portfolio manager in Stock Doctor, you can absolutely benchmark yourself against all the star mm. stock categories. And I'm very happy to say that I am outperforming them. And in fact, this year has been one of the best years that I've been able to uh, uh, able to achieve. But to, to show you that it's not always great, the worst year I ever had, um, and in particular for those investors who um, had been with Stock Doctor for quite some time, they'll remember 2016 was a very difficult year for quality investing. In fact, um, it was a terrible year and a lot of the stocks that we had as star stocks had disastrous outcomes. I mean, two that come to mind uh, were Bocus and Bellamy uh, back in the day. Uh, now, both those businesses had significant pullbacks. I was in them because I practiced what I preached. And yeah, I lost a lot of money, but I didn't get upset. It didn't mean the process mm. was broken. What you do is you put your big boy pants on and you figure out what went wrong. Um, what do we have to improve? What did we have to improve as a research process and research team? And definitely that was, you know, the big part of my working life for the whole one year afterwards. Um, but further to that, how do I become a better investor? And that's the great thing about the share market. It's a great, it's so generous in the amount of lessons it wants to teach us. Um, our problem as investors is listening to them. And in fact, you know, you should consider it like going to university just without, mm. well, actually you do pay a fee. It's the money you end up losing if you end up buying or making a bad, uh, a bad decision. But being pragmatic, being simple, yep, absolutely. And yes, to be honest with you, I've had a great year. But let's face it, you look at the, what's occurring in the broader investing market at the moment, and it's definitely risk on. And all you really need to do to outperform the market at the minute is just not hold the banks. If you mm -hmm. do that, you're serious. I can't see any way you should be underperforming right now, unless you're in a lot of cash, of course. No, I agree. In fact, that's how I kind of started, I guess, started investing seriously was to say that it, the market's a market and if you take out the bad stocks, the good ones have to do better. So, Well, that was the thing because when we used to show that compound chart, uh, Tony, that you're referring to, where we said, right, yeah, well, you start here and you end up here and the market's all down there. Inevitably, the scientists and mathematicians have put their hands up and say, oh, well, yeah, but that's survivorship bias. That only counts the <laughs> companies that stay and doesn't count the ones that don't stay. And then I'd look at them and I'd say, well, that's the point, mm. right? That's the idea. <laughs> that's exactly what it is you want to do. Survivorship bias is the idea. It's the reason why you invest. Stick in the ones that do well, avoid the bad ones. Our performance is just simply a mathematical mm. equation. Mm. And like you, I mean, I must admit, I, I get a little buzz when I've bought a stock and a year later or two years later, it becomes a star stock and gets that nice little bump. It's a good mm. feeling when you've been able to... Uh, uh, I guess, come across something before it's discovered by uh, the mainstream. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the idea. And the beautiful thing about being a share investor, when you do that deeper research, you become great at dinner parties. I mean, <laughs> you can have engaging conversations on so many wide different topic areas. I mean, uh, like the polynova I was telling you about, I mean, I never thought I'd become a dermal repair um, expert, but there you go. Once you invest in a business, once you believe in what it does and you do that legwork, all of a sudden you do gain that inherent knowledge and understanding. And, you know, someone like my um, niece, for example, um, who got into zip pay uh, early on, 
well, she's wrapped. I mean, the, the, she just can't get enough now wanting to acquire market knowledge. And, you know, she's just in her early 20s. And the other thing then I have to coach her is that, no, it's not always this easy to make money in the share mm. market. There will be times where it gets a little scary. And even when it did get scary, it didn't get that scary because we basically bounced and rebounded very aggressively. So <laughs> um, it's just been, you know, it, again, it just continues to give you great lessons. And the buzz that you get, only people that invest in the market can actually get it. It's a difficult thing. Some people will be looking at this podcast and they're watching this for the first time going, this man's insane and this this group's just totally not for me because I don't get it. I wanted to yeah. talk to you before we run out of time, Ilya, but like uh, you talked about the market bouncing back hard. Mm. Do you have any thinking on what happens over the next six months as we uh, as businesses come off the government tit, job keeper, job seeker, all these things start to dissipate out, job whatever the last... Job, job thing maker, is the job maker. That's one, it. Yeah, which, yeah. Yeah, which no one will actually take up because the time frame's too small for someone to start at the plans and then build something. Look, do I have a view? Uh, of course, I have an idea, but you know what? I'm not going to bet against the market. I'm not going to bet against the Fed. It's one of those interesting situations we find ourselves in. Every sense of reasonability and rationality is telling you that things cannot be as good as this for you know, for, for all that much longer. Eventually things are going to have to be, you know, uh, going to have to pull back somewhat. Now, the thing that I always remind everyone is though the plot may, you know, the actors may change, the plot always remains the same. There'll always be a reason for the market to pull back. There'll always be a reason for the market to be over enthusiastic. It, you know, over pessimism and over optimism is what the share market's about. And the reality is somewhere in between, depending on which side of the journey everything is on. The current market as we see it right now, it is very difficult to suggest. Once, as you so eloquently put, we are taken off the teat and um, you know, everything's going to be left to their own self-devices, there are going to be companies that will struggle on the back of that. Um, yes, there might be central bank involvement as there will be in the US. I mean, buying corporate bonds, I never thought I'd hear it, but there you go. Um, you know, basically keeping corporate Australia, uh, corporate America running. In fact, it's communism in reverse. Instead of actually investing in these companies and owning them, they're actually investing in these companies and not making any money out of them. It's it's absolutely uh, unreal. But there you go. That's that's what's happened. We may very well do that here if things get incredibly bad. I don't know. But if you were to look at it from a pure capitalist perspective, we would be in for a lot of strife. It's why, at the moment, you've got to be taking profits off the table. You've got to be in the market. You've always got to be in the market. 100% of my wealth is always in the market, but I am always religiously taking profits. I've been on that journey where you get into a stock where it's a Mount Fuji pattern, where it goes from that bottom corner, goes up, and then comes right back down. Call it Mount Kilimanjaro, whatever it is, but I think you've got the mental image now. When you've got an environment like this where things can switch so aggressively, where there is so much BS when it comes to being able to identify what's going on. If you're trading by headlines, you're gonna get slammed. It's about bringing it back to your process, being in the market when it's telling you to be in, getting out of it when your stock's telling you to get out, and then having your plan that you follow the rule to block out the noise, because if you listen to the noise, it's gonna drive you insane. And so many people that I know that got out in March and are still not back in the market, and now are waiting for the inevitable pullback, which means it's never going to happen, it, it just costs them. They'll, they'll go off this share market investing journey for life. So at the moment, yep, the Fed is pouring up to amounts of money. It will never be paid back in our lifetimes. Um, question will be, will they ever need to pay it back? Um, China at the moment will become the world's largest economy within the next decade. It's something that you know, I articulated to clients 15 years ago when everyone thought that China was still involved in rice paddies and the like. But no, no, they're definitely a very different beast today than what they were 
um, back then, they will become larger. Australia cannot simply walk away from China. Unfortunately, as, as alluring as that might sound, and there's a lot of that geopolitical talk going on, it's still going to be closely aligned to that, and it will still uh, do well on the back of that. So our economy's fine. Our businesses will be great. Unless you think we're going to be downtown Mogadishu, <laughs> you know, in the near future, our companies are going to do great. The question will be what companies will do great in the new environment that we're going to be in and to make sure you've got your plan to keep you sound and safe because if you don't have your plan to keep you sound and safe, you're going to be making a lot of mistakes because one of the other things that we've seen in this recent time is the market is incredibly volatile. There's so much computer trading. The algo trading is massive. I mean, you look at index funds. I mean, our largest company, BHP, um, has over you know, $100-odd billion. Well, there's something like six or seven current ETFs traded on our exchange that are five times bigger than BHP. And that's all done through computers and the like. It's not you know, mum and dad investors or a fund manager making the decision. It's a computer doing all the rebalances and then buying and selling and do, doing all those sorts of things. So you just got to forget about what the world's doing and really focus on yourself. And that's how you will eventually be successful in the market, irrespective of whether we have this new boom or whether we actually do have a reality check and actually experience a recession like the 1990s, where unfortunately, um, it took a very long time to recoup from that. I'm not smart enough to determine where that's going to head, but I can tell you where companies are going and that's pretty much where I'm gonna be making my money rather than worrying about things like interest rates or currency or any of that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah, can't can't disagree with you. I just like to go back to your portfolio and the way that you're investing because yes. uh, I'd say that we probably don't have any stocks in common across our portfolio, so it's a very different approach. Yep. Uh, in terms of let's pick a stock. So you you mentioned it before. I don't know if that's in your portfolio or not. Sorry, or, what or stock one was of those that? Kinds of, uh, buying up. Zip, Z-I-P? Uh, Zip, no, that's not me. That's my niece. Okay, but let's, let's just talk about Zip. Just say it was yep. one that you, you decided you wanted to invest in. Uh, you've done your quality check or you, you've done your, your bottom-up analysis and you like it and you want to buy it. Do you just then buy it regardless of any test of value? Like, do you use sentiment? So if it keeps going up, you keep buying it? Or, or that's, that's the part that I've always found very hard on the on the growth side of things is to say, well, if I like a stock and it meets all the other criteria, very rarely meets my my value test yep. on it. Yeah, how, no, how do you that, go about doing that? Yeah, no, that's a really good question. the The question that saves you that issue is making sure you've got the exit trigger, be it whatever it is. Mm. So, from our perspective, or from you know my perspective, when I'm looking at a business. Yeah, well, let me take it a step back. Um, a few things. There's two thousand stocks on the stock exchange. It is absolutely impossible for um, anyone to invest in all of them. And trying to pick the eyes out of each of them um, is never going, to, um, never going to work. So what I, start to, what I start to do first is with that blank canvas, I start to apply some filters for the use of a better term. Filters that I've come to rely on that have worked really well for me. Filters around cash flow generation and around earnings efficiency, uh, margins, um, the expansion of those, those sorts of things. Zip doesn't fall into that category. If I was investing in, in Zip, it would fall into my speculative category. And for my speculative stocks, I've got different rules about getting in and more importantly, getting out. Um, I know exactly when I'll do that and how I'll manage a position um, when I'm in that. But if I go to the majority of my portfolio, I whittle the whole market down to a smaller group of stocks, ones that I feel more comfortable with. Um, once I whittle that list down, generally it sits at about 60 to 70, I then apply other 
metrics to help me with that refinement, as it were, in regards to um, when do I get in and what my position sign is. So you'll have, let, for all intents and purposes, the A grades who meet all the rules that I'm looking for, or B, the ones that are somewhat emerging, getting into that space that you know, I'm thinking to myself, well, okay, we're, we're, got, we're looking and improving here. And for those that are stock doctor members, for example, is what we used to call a recovery health pattern where they might've been distressed before, but mm -hmm. and they might be early warning now. So they still haven't really improved in terms of overall health, but there are signs of improvement. And then you can look at forecasts and see that that trajectory is continuing. So I'll commit, you know, possibly if they meet my other rules, um, amounts into that. So once I've got my refined list, once I break them up into A grade and B grade, then I do look at sentiment. Um, because you know, ultimately what I want to do is find two things. One, I want to see, because the market will tell you whether they like the prospects of this mm -hmm. stock. I mean, to try to find the reason why everyone's wrong and you're right, you know what, you can mm -hmm. do it, mm -hmm. but the investment of your time required to do that, to most times just go, oh no, the market's right, I better leave it alone. <laughs> um, that's a pretty deflating thing. So, mm -hmm. it's, um, so I do like to look for either it being in an uptrend or at least a solid base that has been created in order to give you confidence that whatever it is, even if it's been on a downward trend before, it seems that these issues have been ironed out. You look at the past announcements, make sure that there's still no uncertainties ahead, and then you can go um, and invest in them. With the speculative guys, they're all theme-based investing. So, you know, whether it be the buy now, pay later space, be it, um, you know, speculative healthcare or new emerging healthcare technologies, none of them are financially mm. healthy, but mm. you accept that they're not. You accept the risks and therefore you manage your exposure to that business with those risks. The other thing um, I will say in regards to that whole timing question, I very rarely, if ever, take a full position in a business um, right off the right off the bat. I, I'm not I've never been a fan of binary outcomes. I always like to keep power to dry, particularly in the types of businesses that I invest in. So because I don't traditionally invest in the ASX 50, um, or even you can even extend that to the 100, but definitely not the 50, because I don't do that, I know that it's inherent that share prices can be volatile. The market will always give me another opportunity to buy into a stock, be it either buying it back into the stock at a lower price than what I bought it at, be it either buying it back into the stock at the same price after it went up for a bit and then came back down. There'll always be opportunities. You know, there's nothing more frustrating in the market as seeing an opportunity on your computer screen and not having the cash to be able to seize it. So very rarely do I go in holus bolus I'm on the one go because that's part of my well-defined investment plan. I'll know when I take another position into that business and that just makes me feel comfortable because remembering cash is the allocation of capital. You know, there's no, not the only time it's going to really matter about putting it all in and all out is if you're only ever going to hold one stock, but because I hold a stock of a portfolio of 30 stocks, you know, any capital that I don't allocate to capital uh, to company A, I can put into company H. Um, or vice versa. It's about allocating that cash in the best way that allows me to, to generate an overall return across the portfolio. You know, it's like a football team. You know, not everyone can be best on ground. You might get one guy who's a star and even one guy that tends to be best on ground more often than not. There's always a best and fairest. But it's the other team members as well. Are they playing their role? Are they giving some stability when someone's a little bit more volatile? Are they picking up the load when the other guy's underperforming? Well, that's the same in your portfolio. Your different stocks would be just like players. And then if you've got someone who's just a dud and no good, then you can just get rid of them and get someone else. It's as simple as that. Disconnecting yourself from the share and turning it into a portfolio manager's mindset when you're looking down on your team like a coach rather than a mug stock picker 
that's really what makes money managers um, you know, successful over the long run, that ability to lift themselves out of that. So, yep, it's always hard to buy that stock. It's even harder to sell it. And in fact, the hardest thing to do is to buy a stock back at a price higher than what you sold it at. But if you've got rules, if you've got your strategy, and you can lift yourself out of the stock and think about it from a portfolio level, those decisions actually become much easier. Um, I know it might not sound like it on a podcast, but if you just at home, look at your portfolio, just look at it on paper, and then lift yourself out of the stock names and think of it about you know, just what, how am I going to position this, it actually starts to click that you can't get emotional with these things, that it is about prag um, pragmatism, it is about having a strategy to keep you sane and safe, and then ultimately just follow that rule book. And then you can change the rule book you know, every quarter. You've got to give it some time to play out to see that it actually works. And if there's something that doesn't work for you at the end of the quarter, tweak it and then follow the strategy with discipline, irrespective of what it is you decide to do, just follow it. Because like I said earlier, it's that failure to adhere to the strategy. Because so many people sit there, oh, you know, uh, my signal told me to get out and I didn't get out. Well, I can't help you. What do I do now? Yeah. Yeah, it's already too late. <laughs> Yeah. Once you ask that, it's already too late. Yep, invest in a time machine is my standard answer for that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know what? That might be an investment thematic. I don't think I'd even get sucked into, uh, Tony, if that's okay with you. <laughs> mm. so, so, Alia, give us a stock tip. What's your, what's your best holding? What, what, are you, what are you buying at the moment? Uh, look, I am a big uh, fan of the payment gateways, and I think the price pullback in EML payments is an opportunity that can't be ignored. For those that don't know, uh, they allow, they're a payment gateway and they've been, you know, they, they've been renowned in the past for being a system that provides the gift cards, you know, like, oh, here's a free $100 gift card and you go out mm -hmm. and you use that to buy things. But their back-end payment processes actually are very strong and they've got strong presence in the US where they have an archaic financial system. They still write checks. Nothing connects mm -hmm. intermittently. It is a seamless interaction that they provide and there's so many people, be it from gambling stocks to financial institutions uh, to shopping centres that are now taking their services and they're going to be a very large um, player. And those payment gateways are a strong theme. So uh, money first, uh, one stock that I had been in um, that's flown today because of these concerns over the cyber attacks in Australia is TNT. Again, stocks that are, you know, um, built on forecasts, on a future evolving economy. You know, Next DC has been another strong one. I'm very comfortable holding um, that and continuing to hold that. They have the data centers. You know, it's all about leveraging what our future is going to look like. And we're going to be more reliant on the internet tomorrow, um, you know, than what we are today. And, uh, and look, I have held Afterpay and Zip in the past, but I don't hold them now because at the time I my strategy told me to get out, but that's fine. Like I said, it could have gone the other way and been disastrous. And I was very happy um, with the return uh, that I generated there, but I wouldn't be getting in now because of course, from that capital allocation question, you've got to ask yourself, is the best chance for me to double my money from this point now? Don't worry about what it's done in the past. From this point today, is being an in investment in afterpay, is that going to give me the best chance to double my investment when it's already at nosebleed levels using your mm -hmm. um, valuation analogy? Is that going to give me the best chance to double my return versus um, being in someone else where I don't necessarily face that uh, same level of risk? But, you know, it, it's evolving. There's always stocks in my portfolio. There's none that I regret holding, even the ones that I lose. I believe that they're systematic. And if, because of that, that gives me the confidence to double down uh, when things aren't... Uh, when things aren't great. So, uh, but they'll, they'll turn around if it's a good business. Mm. 
Yeah, I mean, I, again, I, I couldn't, I couldn't come up buying those. I, I couldn't come up buying EML or an XDC. I just find no, them and, but too expensive. But that's fine. Yeah. But Tony, that's the thing because you know, if you were holding them and I wasn't at the time and I wanted to buy them, I need you to disagree with me. I <laughs> need you to sell yeah. me that stock. And I think investors need to stop this idea of being hung up over, oh, I've got to be right 100% of the time, mm. or I've got to pick every single stock that goes up. I mean, you've seen the press. Everyone's now questioning Warren Buffett as he lost his touch. Well, you know <laughs> what? He'll be wrong till he's right. I mean, what will determine? He'll be mm. right eventually. And he just invests according to his plan and his strategy that served him well in the past, that allows him to sleep at night. Mm. And he can point to the scoreboard and say, well, look, this is what I've done, doing what I've done in the way I've done it. It's the exact same for an individual investor. So, yeah, like I said, don't criticize everyone's uh, faith. We have to accept all faiths in this church. Let's just make sure that you're not a half Christian <laughs> or a half Buddhist. You, you go in and you follow it and you do it with discipline because mm. if you lack the discipline, like your garden, it'll get overrun with weeds and then it takes a lifetime to get it back, if ever. That's, why, that's a good point. That's why Tony's nickname on our show is St. Anthony. Uh, he's he's <laughs> the uh, he's our <laughs> he's the the patron saint of our uh, investment community. All right, Elio. Well, that's been a lot of stuff, mate. I think we should probably wrap it up. Uh, you want to talk to people a little bit about what you're doing at the moment, Spotty? What's that all about? Yeah, so what I'm doing at the moment is really bringing the great investment minds all together in order to share their views and espouse the virtues of how they go about investing in a different way in a real life context. So it's taking my analytical background and bringing it into real life. So we have a program uh, called Spotty, uh, Shining the Spotlight on Shares, which appears on a uh, online streaming channel called tickertv.com.au. And I bring in guests. So like, for example, uh, uh, most recently, I had um, Scott Phillips from The Motley Fool and Rudy Philippeck van Dyke from FN Arena. And we answered questions from the audience. Uh, some questions, Some there was one investor very concerned about, I sign this, where they have an exposure. <laughs> Other investors looking at, you know, uh, companies that could potentially be doing the next big thing. And then there's others that wanted to hear about CSL and, you know, all those quality names and the like. And our guys... Rudy would have would loved sit, that. Oh, of course, he's a big fan of CSL, um, <laughs> and, you know. And, and look, to be honest with you, so am I. I mean, what a great business. I mean... It, you know, the people sit there and go, you've got to be an overseas investor. You've got to invest in overseas shares. It's like, mm -hmm. well, CSL didn't become one of the world's largest biotech companies being stuck in Parkville. You know, they're overseas, great overseas businesses. Um, and say, oh, you can invest in them here in Australia. But either way, though, so what we do is we answer questions from the client live on air so they can email us or text us while we're talking. Um, and we answer those uh, answer those questions. And then really the idea behind that is not necessarily to show one person's right or one person's wrong, but it's really to allow investors to dig into the psyche of how these people pick money. Because I have a number of chartists that appear, so people who are skilled in technical analysis, very different than what I do from a pure sense and very different than what a lot of people do from a fundamental sense. But hearing their perspective, for someone in the audience might say, you know what, that actually sounds a bit like me. That sounds more like I feel comfortable with rather than doing a, a, an Andrew Page sort of straw man analysis where he's going deep into these businesses trying to figure out, you know, their economic moat and all these other complex theories. And that might, someone goes, oh, geez, I, that really doesn't relate to me. I don't get that. So this sort of um, approach of showing them is really what I intend to do um, with that program. And then from there, once that, that'll probably be a bit of a platform for the education unit that we talked about a little earlier. And then from there, well, the, the sky's the limit. But either way, though, it'll always be with the mantra of wanting to help people because it's been my life for the last 20 years. So, yeah, I help them in the share market. But, 
you know, that, that that's great. And, and the good thing is, is I've got a new generation of people that I can actually speak to as well, rather than uh, my worthy, wonderful stock doctor clients who I love, who are always part of my family for many years. But, uh, but now it's time for me to go out and help others as well. And where do people find this? Was it Ticker, ticker TV? Uh, yeah, tickertv.com.au is that website. But you can go to Spotty. Now, Spotty is S-P-O-T-E-E.com.au. Uh, Spotty being short for the Australian term Spotlight, showing the spotlight on shares. Um, so go to spotty.com.au and you'll see a whole bunch of uh, videos and the like. They're all uh, free and available. And you can uh, just simply search it to your heart's content and follow me on all the social media channels if you wish um, to get some of the other candor that occurs whilst I'm not actually doing serious work, which is quite frequently actually in the recent recent times because the market's actually been quite easy, to be honest. But I know it won't be that way forever. Yeah. Well, thanks a lot, man. It was really good to talk to you. Thanks for taking some time out of your day to have a chat. Uh, An absolute pleasure. Nothing like investing anyone's time in helping others. Nothing more fulfilling than that good nice. day. thanks Elio thanks guys thanks Tay thanks, uh, hopefully uh, you weren't shocked by the uh, slight uh, change in my sort of approach to investing life and the no, life no no well, not at all no it's That's exciting to see you moving on and, and building new things fantastic mm. good for yeah. you no really really looking forward to it and um, and yeah the, the main objective is look with Stock Doctor and with our funds you know you had to be you had to have already a significant amount of coin, as it were, to come on board as a member, whereas we could be potentially helping a whole bunch of new people just starting out. So the next generation wealth accumulator. And I remember what it was like starting out and how hard it was to you know, decompose what it is you're hearing and try to put it practical. Well, hopefully I can do that for them. Yeah, good stuff. Well, good. keep us keep us in the loop with what you're doing. When you go to the next phase, we'll love to have you come back on and talk about it. Yeah, well, hopefully all going well, touch wood. If I've done all that uh, stuff right, it'll be August, September. There'll be uh, a little bit more to announce then, but I don't want to go too early in case uh, I left out, you know, Form B, well, Question 7A on Form B2 or whatever it was. I had to fill in B3, I think it was. I can tell you now, it's a rigorous process. Yeah. Have a good weekend, Elio. Thanks for chatting, mate. Yeah, I will do. Thanks very much, guys. Take care. Bye. Bye. Bye now.